This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello, I am Mark Borderstone, and welcome to The End of History, a monthly program presented by the Canterbury Socialist Society where we discuss the class struggle, contemporary unionism, economics and current affairs in order to promote working class history and socialist ideas as they apply to the 21st century. Kia ora koutou, meri kirihimiti, ngā mihi o te wā. Welcome to The End of History, a radio show slash podcast brought to you by the Canterbury Socialist Society. I'm Shannon Burns. I'm an executive member of the Canterbury Socialist Society, and it's my pleasure to wish you a Merry Christmas and season's greetings. It's been a year, and right now I'm probably lying on a couch, thankful for family, friends, food, elasticated pants, and a break away from work. I hope you are also enjoying a break with your favourite people and recharging for the year ahead. In 2024, The End of History is back with a new introduction, new theme music, and an extended slot of an hour and a half. Same old host, but I think you'll forgive me for that. Until then, here's another of the talks given at the recent Aotearoa New Zealand Federation of Socialist Societies Conference, which was held in Ōtautahi Christchurch over Labour weekend of this year. This talk is given by Joe Hendren and Quentin Findlay, and it's about the Aotearoa New Zealand political writer and figure, Bruce Jessen. If you'd like to learn more about and join the Canterbury Socialist Society or another socialist society local to you, visit socialistsocieties.org.nz. Thanks, Joe and Quentin. Thank you for listening, and catch you on the other side. Um, so what, is, um, what I thought I'd do with this is just to keep this thing pretty broad. We're not going to have any firm conclusions, so really I'm just inducing some of his ideas and leave the end quite open so we can have the discussion rather than so this is the way. No, so so it's, it's, I want to encourage the, um, the discussion at the end. Um, so really what I'm trying to do is to just introduce some of his work and also show how some of his work is relevant for um, contemporary debates. Um, okay. Right, okay, so Bruce um, was uh, born in 1944 in, um, in Christchurch. Um, and uh, he was, you know, Noah, and he, he, he most of spent his early life in Christchurch. He went to Boys High. Interestingly, uh, one of his classmates at Boys High in the same third form was Tony Simpson and David McPhail. So this, um, it was actually something that I looked at in my PhD too in terms of some of the Christchurch intellectual history and why so many of the economic thinkers of that era actually came out of Christchurch rather than other places. Um, so, and, um, so, so about around the late 60s, Bruce married uh, Joss Brown, who became Joss Jessen. Now, um, Joss is, uh, was a notable activist and an academic in her own right. And I didn't know Bruce, but uh, Joss O'Callan is a friend of mine, and she told me some stories about Bruce, and so I got some insight on that, so I really appreciate and also, Joss played an important role in terms of that while they lived in Auckland in the 70s and 80s, often she was um, generating the family income through a teaching salary, and that allowed Bruce to become a writer, yeah, and to devote more time to that. So you can see Bruce had around four books, and, uh, Jess, and, and uh, Quentin's got some of those there. Um, 
And uh, he also wrote a piece of the Republican, which was a, a journal that he edited and created, the New Zealand Political Review and Metro. So the Metro was uh, a, um, a, a glossy Auckland magazine from the 1980s, where it was quite, not quite where you'd find a Marxist writer, but he was there. And I think that also showed that um, he was, his analysis was so good that it was actually respected right across the spectrum. So even though he was a Marxist, People like Fran O'Sullivan from the Herald and they really appreciated the things he said and some of the things that he said about the business community were quite insightful. Okay, so um, Bruce started out um, in reading Marx and things in his, school, in his school years, largely looking through things like the Communist Party of New Zealand, um, publications like People's Voice and uh, Monthly Review. Um, so it was really a materialist and activist sort of Marxism. Um, in 1965, Jesus really tried to create more of an independent path for himself. Um, and he did this in, um, alongside a, um, a, what I think he was called a, a, a Maoist polemist called Jack Sturt. They wrote a, um, a, um, an article that was cr critical of the, um, the, New the New Zealand communist left at that time. Um, and uh, so, that, so what the, well, they, one thing they tried to develop there, as they said, they said there was a, a contradiction between um, the, a New Zealand dependence on Britain and the possibilities of workers' revolution. Because they were sort of saying, could you have one without the other? That was the start of that discussion in the mid-60s. Now, this was um, re related to Marxist theories around in the sort of late 60s or 70s where they said they have a two-stage revolution. So the idea is that you've got to have um, you've got to have national sovereignty first before you can get before the, the workers' revolution will be um, successful. Now, um, so, so in some ways it's sort of seen as a, like a strategic choice. Um, so even um, some like people like Bill Rosenberg say that it's, in the seventies were saying that even a, a, a government trying to do moderate things would have trouble without some element of national sovereignty. And perhaps you saw some of those constraints come up with the Kirk government. Um, so, yeah. Right, so, all right, so where am I? Okay. So, so what you were sort of saying is one could have one both at once. Um, real independence from Britain must be the first goal until, um, and what he was calling for is to unite with other left patriotic elements in New Zealand, so some of the bourgeois classes to um, to, to push the, um, the Republican agenda. Now, I think it's, um, it's it might seem a bit, Bruce's um, stress on Republicanism sort of at this, if something might not be quite so clear at this point, but I think you've got to put that in the context of uh, how New Zealand was in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, where you had uh, the first past to post electoral system, and a very, even though it was a democracy, it was a very autocratic style. So once a government was elected, they pretty much got to do everything they like. So you had Muldoon in the 70s, who was both finance minister and he was prime minister, so he held a lot of control, a lot of power himself. And then you went to the 80s, where you had um, the, um, the, the, for, the cabinet of the fourth Labour government, since once they were elected, doing the opposite of what they said they would do, you know, when, before they were elected. So this was related to, um, of the autocratic nature of, um, of monarchy when you know cabinet ministers aren't actually there as servants of the people, they're actually servants of the crown. So I think Bruce's um, stress on republicanism actually came from trying to address some of that democratic deficit. Okay, in the 1970s you also saw a, um, 
an interest in uh, growing interest in imperialism as a concept in, in political economy. And you've got people like Barrett Brown and things like that who were writing at that time. There was also another influential person was the American economist Paul Baran, who was talking about in, imperialism. Um, and also there was uh, Bill Such in the New Zealand context that was showing a, a similar line. So, and, and, so and I think the other thing that Bruce, because I think what he was trying to work out is why the neoliberal revolution happened in New Zealand so easily. What were the things that you know, made it so easy that things seemed to fall over and they seemed to get their way? And I think one of the things that Bruce was talking about was just saying that New Zealand lacked a clear national identity. Um, and so it was still uh, redefined as a, a second edition of Britain. Um, so it was defined by its 19th century colonial British past. And that was often something that he wrote quite a bit about. So and you sort of see there's a quote down the bottom there. So New Zealand's identity as a nation, including its very existence, has been a tangible problem, a result of the destructive forces of global capitalism. Okay. Right. It's really good we've got a discussion about uh, the cast this morning because there's a direct link there I can make with Jesson. So thank you, for Daniel, for that presentation. Um, so um, that uh, Jesson, when he was starting to look beyond um, some of the, the, the activist Marxist text, he was looking to things like Lucas and the Western Marxists, and he was one of the few people in New Zealand that was reading those things at this time. Um, so, and th these were came in quite important um, influences on Jesson actually uh, describing himself as a Galilean. So, which I think is quite interesting, he was calling himself an Galilean as opposed to calling himself a Marxist. Um, so, and just to re re relate it to Lacasse, um, you know, the, what Jesson saw in the 1980s was that the free marketeers were pushing a version of the, f of the market that was very illusory. There was sort of this very idealised fantasy land of how the market is meant to work, which had very little to do with the underlying social reality. So that was sort of some of the things that I think we picked up from Lacasse on that point. So as I was talking about before, and from the mid-1960s, Jesson was trying to separate himself and try to sort of create his own path. Um, and he sought to, but to separate himself from both the vulgar Marxists, that was the term he used, not mine, um, so he saw as, as anti-intellectual and out of touch. And the social, he also saw the social liberals as someone as quite unserious. And they were motivated more by a politics, less by politics, but more moral, you know, humanitarian concerns. We'll do this because it's a nice thing to do rather than because it's just. That's sort of the, the, sort of the idea. So that led Jesson to describe himself as part of the independent left. And that was made out of those critical of capitalism, but not a member of the Labour Party or involved in the sectarian communist scene. Um, another influence on Bruce, which is quite interesting, is, um, is, is the Hungarian economist Karl Polanyi, um, who wrote some very similar, some, some similar ideas to um, Lukács. But he wrote a great book called The Great Transformation, which I found through Bruce, and I thoroughly recommend, because even though it's written by an economist, it's quite accessible. And what he's talking about is the birth of market capitalism in the 19th century. OK, and you sort of see a clear, clear um, thing that another thread through Jesson's work was he's challenging the anti-intellectualism that he saw in New Zealand and, and elsewhere. So, he, but in one sense, he saw that the anti-intellectualism anti started 
with the New Zealand's pioneer, pioneering colonial heritage, the sort of idea of number eight wire, we don't need to think this sort of thing, things, things for sissies. Um, but uh, but uh, I think that um, in some ways sometimes Jason over, over, overdid this. So I think this is one thing you can say about his thought. Sometimes that I think he said things for effect, so to get a reaction, so sometimes he was exaggerating. Because I think sometimes there have been in, um, examples in New Zealand where there have been intellectual type organisations. I mean, campaign against foreign control of Aotearoa and some of the um, CTU have influenced in that intellectual space. So it's not completely sparse, that's all I was going to say. So, but I think another way you can think about this point about anti-intellectualism, particularly when it relates to Marxism, is that um, you've got the quote there, the, the philosophers have already interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. Now, I think the trouble is that a lot of Marxists have tried to interpret this in a very anti-intellectual way. That you don't need to think, you just need to sell more newspapers, or along those lines. So, um, what I think actually of that quote, the most important thing of it, is actually the punctuation. So, uh, the philosophers have already interpreted the world in various ways, and the point is to change it. Okay? So this, this um, was, Bruce made a similar point where I think he said that action and theory are commonly regarded as opposites or at least as alternatives. Action is referred as being practical and showing commitment, whereas theory is disposed as indulgent at least as removed from reality. So, um, and also in this book, um, this book here, there's um, a quite, quite a good introduction by Andrew Sharp, um, who, talk, who um, introduces Jason's work and what some of his influences. Um, and also there's an interesting um, essay at the end by Peter Lee who, um, who links it to Hegel and, and Lukács. So if you're interested in that stuff, have a look in that book. Um, so, so, yeah, this, so Jason's called a relate, um, to reject anti-intellectualism is sort of saying, as praxis, socialists become, should become intellectuals who critically examine the history of their society, fully engaging with the social, cultural and political and economic life of the times. Now, now it's interesting that even though he was trying at this point trying to, to say I'm part of the independent left and this is largely where he thought most politics would come from, um, he actually got involved in the alliance, which is interesting. So even though his family suggested at the time getting involved in a political party was going to end in tears. Okay, so uh, in the early 1990s, Jason was writing enthusiastically of the formation of the New Labour Party and the Alliance. This was about 1989 to 1991. Um, but he also was making warnings at that point that a mood is an unsexual basis for a political movement. So I think in the early days there was a sense that the Alliance was almost defined on what it was opposed to rather than what it was for. And, sorry, and, and also that sometimes, you know, that led to debates if you try and say what something is for rather than what you're... So it's a more get a sense of unity what you're against. So there were, that, I think that's what he was getting at there. Um, and uh, in mid-90s, Je, uh, Bruce Jesson actually stood in as an alliance candidate for the Auckland Regional Services Trust. And he actually played a key role in preventing the privatisation of the Auckland Port and Airport. And the interesting thing there, he was actually working with a whole lot of right-wingers at that point. But because Jason knew the economics and he knew how to talk to these people, he actually sort of said, well, no, this is another way you can do it, but you don't need to privatise it. And then the, the people working around him said, oh, yeah, OK, that kind of works. So there, there was actually, so he actually used his, as an example where he used his knowledge of economics and 
things to um, actually push a left-wing agenda and show why that knowing that stuff is important. Okay. Um, also, in regards to the alliance, um, he wrote a, a, a critical article called "United We Fall" in 1996. And what he was doing is criticising the internal democracy in the alliance because the alliance at that time was a, a like a coalition of five distinct parties. And what that meant was that it largely the party leaders had more control perhaps than the party, than the party members because it was all sort of divvied up between the, the parties at some point. Um, so, and he actually um, predicted in 1996 that this, um, this structure was going to cause problems once they got into, into, into Parliament and people became MPs. And uh, even though the Alliance um, leadership at this time in 1996 we're calling Jesson horrible names and calling us treasonous and all this sort of thing. Actually, unfortunately, a lot of the things of what he said in 1996 ended up to be true. There was an element of truth to it, because you can see how the alliance split in between 2000 and 2002. Okay, and you can, and I, th I thought that you almost Jesson actually enables to almost sum up the alliance in one sentence, which I th was always thought was quite neat when he said that. Um, you've said that Jim Anderton's toughness created a political force to the left of Labour, but his personal limitations crippled it. But I, I will say again that um, I think that Jason was writing for, an, um, for an intent here. He was trying to get a reaction, so sometimes he could over-exaggerate, and even in this article he, he mentioned he, he might have exaggerated himself. Okay. And we'll come, come to Jason on the Labour Party. Now, when I was preparing this talk, I came across a really interesting article that Jesson wrote in 1983 called Looking at the Labour Party, Where Have All the Workers Gone? And it's quite interesting how many of these predictions actually turned out to be really accurate. Um, and you can sort of see that Jesson again is talking about praxis of how, how socialists and left-wingers should try and organise. Um, so it's sort of saying some people go into the unions and other people go into the communist sects, but they, you know, they often don't end up being... Um, very effective. Others drift towards the Labour Party, um, and then, but then the trouble is then they find out in, itself in a project that is doubly reformist. They're trying to reform the Labour Party and hope that it's going to become a reformist party. So again, you can see even in 1983, and that's something I still agree with 100% today, is that an uncompromising left-wing critique of the Labour Party that's still needed. So interestingly, in 1983, Jesson also predicted that Labour would lurch to the right in government, which they did from 1984. Okay, um, so even if he didn't predict the extent of the free market agenda, he could see the rumblings of it. And that was, I think, um, what, even though he was trying to find his own way through Marxism, I think that he, right through, he kept, I think he appreciated the strength of the Marxist analysis in terms of history, and that's often where I think he was trying to make, make his predictions from. Yeah? Now this is just another little, quite a little aside that I came across. Now you might have seen in the la over the last um, in the last election, one of the things the Labour Party have been criticised for the last time in government is that their approach seems very piecemeal. They always seem to be plugging gaps rather than actually trying to have a, a broad policy that's actually going to try and fix things. Interestingly, Jesson had actually identified that in 1983. So it's again, it's these um, these same themes coming up again. Um, I will say that um, I, I, I can say more. Jesson also had a lot to say about Murray and Pakiara relations, which are quite interesting. Um, I've kept those out of this talk at the moment, but I do have some material if people have got questions on that at the end. Um, but particularly, I think that um, I think you could say that Jesson would have been very interested in the Murray party 
and that uh, as a good, you know, a, a good chance if he'd got involved, he would have got disenchanted too. I will say that. Okay. Um, so as I said, from from the mid um, 1990s, you sort of um, but you saw um, that the alliance was actually losing support to New Zealand first, and Jason was becoming more disenchanted with the alliance at that point and where it was going. So in foot, he actually ended up being quite, inter um, quite interested in New Zealand First at this point. So he was writing a few articles that pro-New Zealand First prior up to the, um, the 1996 election. So you can sort of see that while Jessen made some um, insightful predictions, he also got some things wrong too. Because um, he, he failed to predict that Peters would spur, he thought that Peters was going to go with Labour in 1996 and, have, and, and bring on sort of a more of a nationalist agenda in terms of the econo economy. But little do you know that Peters doesn't actually care about that stuff, and I can talk about that more. <laughs> um, he's a bit of a charlatan. Um, but so, so, um, he's, so he was surprised that it went with National. But it's just interesting that, you know, here we are in 2003, and um, Jesson in 1997 wrote in an article called The Jester is About to Steal the Crown um, with the, the incoming National New Zealand First Government. And look at what's happening right now in a week's time. So I'll leave it there. That's my turn. Well, thank you, Joe. Um, I actually knew Bruce Jason and I knew Joss and so on too, actually before the Alliance was actually formed when Bruce um, stood as an independent candidate for the left in the 19. 87 general election and so on. Really. Now, I really became actually acquainted with Bruce Jason really through his books, which I've actually bought. I had to fight, go to my bookcase and find them, and Harry, you're not allowed to borrow them. <laughs> but one of the books, of course, is Fragments of Labour and Behind the Miraglass. So I've got them. Ah, thank you. So he wrote four books all in all, but these were the two books and so on that I actually became very acquainted with and became really my text for the 1980s. And both of these works are really about the political and breakdown, and really the economic breakdown and take-up of New Zealand during that decade. And Joe was sort of touched on, on, on along that, and um, essentially it was about really the takeover of the Labour Party and the economy by essentially what we termed the new rights very quaintly back in the 1980s, but essentially was now known, of course, today as neoliberals. And Jason was very familiar to me through his various Metro articles as well, because I, like most left-wingers, actually read Metro. In the same way that Marx used to read the Times and so on to actually understand what was going on with capitalism, left-wingers in the 1980s actually read Metro and the 1990s and so on too. And Jason's critique in both these works, recent of the premise, that throughout the 1980s and uh, 1970s in particular, there'd been a prolonged and sustained undermining of the New Zealand social democratic, electoral and economic hegemony by predominantly international finance capital and local institutions such as Treasury, who had been largely taken over by the new right in the 1970s. And Jason, when I was researching for this last night after I dropped off Joe, I came across a very ripped up old speech of Jason from 1987 that somehow I got my hands on, in which Jason makes the point then that he feels that the majority of New Zealanders are actually conservative social democrats. And that had been because of the fact that since World War II in particular, 
that there being a social democratic hegemony and so on that being imposed on this country to do this government and so on like that. But today, I'd actually warrant the view that thanks to 40 years of neoliberalism, they have essentially the majority of New Zealanders now feel actually uh, they're more neoliberal than they would be social democrats. So it could explain uh, a number of things that are actually going wrong. Now, what Jason argued was that this takeover of both the economy and the Labour Party was made similar by the simpler by the aggressive and ad hoc interventionist approach of Prime Minister Rob Muldoon. And essentially those of us who went through the 1970s and 1980s with Muldoon had very good and long memories and so on of what he was. Someone described him as what was it, Oscar the Gra a cross between Oscar the Grouch and Big Cleave from Glasgow. <laughs> But he was more very aggressive. He was a person, as someone once said, that he wouldn't want to meet in a dark alley with a baseball bat. And that was how he basically ran the economy. And it was, as Joe said, very ad hoc. There is this thing, particularly with the neoliberals after 1984, of painting Maldon as some sort of interventionist monster who was uh, basically uh, completely wedded to centralise, what was it? Um, Polish economics, as Bob Jones said, that you know Maldon ran the economy like a Polish shipyard. But in actual fact, that's not the case at all. And as Brian Roper would have told people in Simon, it was a standard those first year classes. Now the first thing that Maldon did in 1976, when he became Prime Minister and Minister of Finance, was to actually start privatising sections of the New Zealand economy and deregulating it. But then the shit hit the fan and Maldon very quickly reverted and so on to interventionism. So, you know, he wasn't that sort of straightforward sort of creature that was actually presented by the neoliberals. But certainly by the time it got to 1981 and 1984, the economy was seen as being exceedingly, uh, essentially interventionist and exceedingly autocratic and so on in the way it was actually won, run and so on. And there was a whole lot of things going on. And so it was made simple by Maldon. It was made also very simple by the willingness and zealotry of the incoming uh, Minister of Finance, Roger Douglas, as well as, and I'm going to be quite blunt about this, the complete economic ignorance of the leader of the Labour Party, David Longy, who proved that he could be a first-rate comedian and a really bad Prime Minister. And he was, and Jason named him as essentially big economically illiterate and actually responsible for a lot of what the party uh, did during that period of time because of the fact that he didn't understand economics until it was too late. Now, as Jason notes in his books and his articles from that time, economic pressure of the government had begun to build in the 1970s and there was a number of factors and so on for this. There was the oil shocks, there was the loss of the war in Vietnam, there was a corresponding economic recession, there was uh, basically high inflation, high unemployment, there was what we call stagflation and so on at the time. And the new right, which at that point had mostly been a little cabal-like group centred around the Montpellier society, which is a little new right cult, which had people like uh, basically Milton Friedman and so on in it, essentially had gained increasing influence and so on over various governments, most notably, of course, Mrs. Thatcher in the United Kingdom and, of course, Ronald Reagan in the United States. And so, essentially, they increasingly gained influence here in New Zealand through predominantly Treasury, which had been won over by, essentially, new right arguments and so on during this period of time. 
And in the late 1970s, saw their way forward because Maldoon ignored treasury because he saw them as being completely new right, was to concentrate all their focus on the Labour Party, where in fact they actually managed to influence Roger Douglas. So essentially the society, the Mount Perion society, was extremely opposed to the prevailing economic and economic doctrine, which had influenced decision making since 45. The rise of state involvement in investment, very opposed to that, and had a particular hatred of social democracy that had prevailed in the West and the use of public funds and economic programs to fill things like full employment and high wages and stuff like that, really hated that stuff and so on too. And so Jason made a particular point of noting the Mount Perrin Society and noting the influences on it was actually having at that point. And he discussed particularly the means by which international capital had infiltrated and co-opted New Zealand's domestic economy uh, at that point. Now, up until the mid-1980s, the domestic economy could best be described, as Joe said, as autocratic, but also as patronistic. So essentially it was dominated really by a number of large domestic firms, and they're not really concentrated on speculation as such as they were concentrated on production. And so I'm thinking of things like, for example, Fletcher's, uh, who actually were predominant at that time with housing and also appliances, farmers, the original farmers, hayrights, uh, Mrs. Pope's, Beggs, um, what was it, Para Rubber, which I actually worked for for a while. They had shops all the way from Invercargill to Kaitaia. And these were firms and so on. They had links of scale. Of course, Para was owned by Scalar Rubber. So they had firms and they did things. They invested in the economy and they did things. And over this was a large-scale public sector, which was again concerned with production and development. The largest employer in that public sector, of course, were the New Zealand Railways. And of course, they also had the Ministry of Works. So when I drove here just before lunch and went through the Littleton Tunnel, that was done, of course, by an interventionist national government and, of course, by the Ministry of Works and so on at the time. And the entire structure was held in place by an active interventionist state sector which promoted local private development and growth to reward wages, negotiated at a national level with unions, import and export controls, and immersive regulation and controls that were designed to protect and enhance domestic, economic and social provision and they hated it. And so, as a result, this was brought to a very quick end in the mid-1980s with the election of the Labour government and virtually overnight, control and regulations were dismantled and the economy went from being focused on production to being focused on speculation and finance. Um, Jason observed that economic control was effectively and quickly passed to a small group of businessmen whose main concern was done to really make money for themselves. And essentially at the time I remember that, you know, the, this is one of the things too that Joe actually mentioned about the, essentially about how the media and so on particularly played into it. The idea that was all good and everyone could become a millionaire if they actually wanted to, to the extent that they had these programs on TV saying, here's this man who basically has no money who went around Wanganui and essentially managed to borrow a car, a Ferrari, and stuff like this. This guy is a saint, he can do it. This is what our future is. The Geneva of the South Pacific is what Roger Douglas called it. So essentially, you can do well on that. So 
How did this happen? Well, it was done through manipulation, as I said, of the political parties, principally Labour and National, but it was also fostered, as I said, onto the public, for the media, which presented this takeover as beneficial to both the economy and to society at large. And this is what Jason points out. And one of the things that flipping through his book reminded me was the extent, as I said, to which people were told that the market was actually neutral. It was neutral. That goods and services would transfer from one area to another area based upon market needs. There was nothing political about it. It would just happen like magic. And this is an opposition, of course, to the traditional state-led approach which prohibited that transfer. So in fact, the state was actually responsible for the poverty and so on that people were in, and the market would cure it. Now we might smile at it now, but essentially that was how it was actually presented and so on at the time. And the result of this messaging, as Bruce noted, was a sustained attack on social democratic positions and beliefs with the deliberate intentions of replacing them with neoliberalism. And that brings me back to what I observed before about really about the critique now of most people being actually more neoliberal than they were socially democratic. And the nature of this can best be explored in the book in Fragments of Labour, which deals with the destruction of the Labour government and the Labour Party in the 1980s. Um, as a person who was involved there, I can tell you it was fairly traumatic. It's the one time I've actually seen fist fights break out actually at the Labour Party meetings and so on like that. So now as Joe said, Bruce was both Marxist, so he described himself as a member of the independent left and the Hegelianists, and an economic nationalist, and that was due to his readings with both Marx and the New Zealand economy. And it led him to uh, basically acknowledge that firstly capitalism, despite its upheavals, was an incredibly resilient system. And secondly, that workers were best catered for a regulated system that constrained the respect of the worst effects of that system. Subsequently, according to Jason, the left had a twin role. Firstly, it needed to protect and enhance public ownership and control of the existing economic system. And secondly, it had to develop a practical alternative for workers and for the larger community. And so that was, I also remember Bruce arguing this actually with um, Anderton of all people and so on having a Lions conference. Very great of them. But the commitment led Bruce, one could say, some very strange places. Politically, he supported the NLP and the Alliance, and that was where I actually met him. And then he came around to actually support, along with Chris Trotter, New Zealand First. And it was based on really Winston's um, commitment at the time to re establishing domestic economic um, sovereignty. And one could read Winston back in 1996 or essentially in 1993, when he wasn't blaming Asians, he was talking about the fact that, you know, essentially that economic sovereignty had been lost by the market and only New Zealand first could get it back. However, as Bruce got to know Winston, and as he got to know New Zealand first, in the same way he described uh, what was it, vulgar Marxists, he came out to actually subscribe vulgar nationalists. And essentially he became very aware that, of course, what Winston said was not necessarily what Winston meant and what Winston actually did. So, but it leads me back to, to one of the principal criticisms that Bruce had of the Alliance, which was concentrated on the alternative budgets. And I've actually went through all my old stack of stuff 
and I've got a few alternative budgets and so on here and we were actually took them out to actually demonstrate of course that the NLP at the time or the Alliance could actually run the economy and so we had economists that run through and we'd actually sit down there and work out how much money we'd give to here and how much we'd raise tax rates and so on and Andrew Tate will probably remember Jim Flynn going on about this I'm like milky cookies you know I've designed these tax rates to do this look at this Quentin you don't have to sign this so <laughs> You know, when I'd wander into the pole studs department on the third floor, you'd go to tweet, speak Jim out, you know, to talk about maybe my masters or my, my honours. Jim would come and say, no, 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 I don't want to talk about this. Now, I've looked at the tax rates here. Philosophy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, but it was one of the critical concerns was that the left was very good, he said, at spending money. We were very good at redistributing it and so on like that. We weren't good at actually creating it. That we didn't actually know about essentially how to actually create money in the economy. And it was because that we had no really clear idea about what this actually meant. We had a no, no clear idea of economic systems or indeed of economic analysis. And that was one of his main concerns, and that was what actually led him to break with Anderton and so on like that. That essentially, that there didn't seem to be that understanding. And so, as much as I liked um, Bruce, and I did, I always felt that essentially, in one sense, he was quite correct. In another sense, I think he was being overzealous himself when it actually came to a number of these matters. And, um, but either way, I mean, it was a great privilege knowing him, and he contributed quite a lot. In fact, um, contrary to what you said, he was actually the one the ones responsible for creating the alliance when he actually had a village in Tamula when he stood for the Auckland Regional Council and won. And I can definitely say that the early alliance was like herding cats. Um, you know, so, but yeah, that's another story. Thank you. <laughs> I was just going to quickly add, because um, Quentin had mentioned the Montpellier and Society, there's actually something a little bit of late, you probably later history you should know about, is that the Montpellier Society actually held a, a, like an international conference here in about 1990, 1990, and there was a protest outside, and they thought there was, the protesters thought the Montpellier and Society were coming out so much bullshit, they actually threw literal bullshit at them. <laughs> so that, that's a little bit of labour history there. Um, just, um, just, just in terms of, yeah, uh, one thing, I was, another thing I'm just going to add, just in terms of what I was talking about, two-stage revolution and the need for it, another way you can think about that is that I think um, the left often needs to pay much more attention, where, if they want to implement socialist policies, what, are they going to, what is the going to reaction of the right going to be? How are they going to react? How are we going to deal with this? So really, you know, you're talking about workers having a strike, when actually if you get um, the... Um, the capitalists that are saying, well, we're going to withdraw all our money. That's a capital strike. Mm -hmm. So I think that was partly the other thing that Jesson was trying to alleviate by having national sovereignty that would alleviate some of those dangers. And the example you could have of that is actually in 1938. You had, like, the, the, the first Labour government was elected to a second term with a big, big majority. Um, and they were going to implement the, the social welfare changes and they're going to bring in a universal health system. But what happened is that they got a call from London. And the call from London was from all the British banking establishment. 
and a Conservative government in the UK. And they said to New Zealand at that point, well, you know how you've got that mortgage, you know how you've got that overseas debt, we want to call it in. So I think that gives you an idea of, it wasn't said, but essentially that was implied that we don't like your policies and you need to change them. So even though New Zealand had, the Labour Party had this huge big majority, you still had the uh, London financial establishment trying to undermine it. So that, that was the sort of thing in terms of, yeah, just going to use that as an example. But no, I'd, I think we'll just uh, throw it open to questions at, that, at this point. Um, I appreciate questions rather than statements, maybe statements at the end. Yeah, do we go for that? Yep. I've got two. Yep. Two questions, not statements. Uh, first is uh, around, I've uh, liked you guys through quite a lot of Bruce's work, I'd certainly recommend it for many younger people here. It's maybe a little dated, but the analytical aspect is really good. One thing that used to come through in some of his work was he had this idea about New Zealand being a very state-centric society. Mm. And I feel like, it's a while since I read it, but I feel like that was part of his ideas around why uh, Rogenomics was as extreme as it was by international standards, was that it was at least in part a function of New Zealand being kind of essentially a very top-down society, and therefore we can have these kind of fairly wild swings, quite left wing Labour Party in the 30s, quite a right-wing Labour Party, uh, or, or you know, neoliberal party in the 1980s. Mm. So I wonder whether you could elaborate on that, whether or whether sure. I misinterpreted what he had to say. Yeah. Uh, the second question was around, uh, you sort of talking about his arguments against anti-intellectualism. I sort of more remember him talking about, um, and we might have said this here, wasn't this listening enough, around New Zealand intellectuals or, or socialists or whatever, developing a kind of more New Zealand-specific uh, or New Zealand-centric form of Marxist or socialist analysis and not kind of constantly importing and critically thinking from um, other uh, writers in the United States or, mm -hmm. or, or on the continent of Europe. Um, and I mean, I, I think it's a huge problem. I think it was a problem in this time and I think it's still a problem today, though arguably it's largely importing Marxism today, it's more like a post-colonial theory and the <coughs> sort of popular forms of literary criticism and stuff. But uh, the same thing goes on. And what worries me even more is you've not just got that going on in academia and intellectuals around academia, but you've also got people who've recognised this as a problem, who are trying to respond to it, sort of criticise the uncritical stuff, and yet they flee to these sort of other sort of cranked fringes of America I, or I think Britain I, I think to kind of go, oh, we've got to stop importing all this stuff, and yet they're leaning on Americans or Brits or whatever to make that point, as if we can, from our own issues, from our own perspectives, kind of say, hey, we want to develop a unique yeah, I, I, I know where you're going. Yeah, it's thank you. I, I, I sort of feel like it's just another reiteration of the broader problem of cultural cringe in New Zealand. Sure. But, yeah. Yeah, those, those are two questions that are going to elaborate on both. Yeah. Sure. Okay. No, I think um, first in relation to the, the relationship of the state in New Zealand, I think that's a wider issue than just Bruce. Um, I think you need to look back to the 1890s Liberal government, um, where you, you had an example of a state that came in and was. Um, did some major reforms that didn't help elsewhere in the world, like some of the Industrial Relations and Arbitration Act were quite world-leading in the 1890s and things. Um, and one of the things that they talked about suggested there that perhaps New Zealand was lacking a, a mid-part in a civil society, so you had like the state and the citizens. Socialism and, without doctrines. Yeah, yeah, so it's a small, it's like because it's a small society that meant you just had the state and the citizens. Um, so I think that's a, that's a wider issue than just Bruce. 
Um, just in regards to your second point, um, it's certainly true that I think Bruce was trying to focus on New Zealand um, in terms of trying to come like with a, a New Zealand analysis. And even I would say perhaps he went a bit overboard with it, actually. Because um, he actually didn't, when I was talking about the social liberals before, um, and some of the, you know, the, he, Bruce didn't really understand why the social liberals got really upset about the Vietnam War, they got really upset about the Springbok tour and the anti-nuclear um, anti legislation. To him, to, to Bruce, and I think he, probably more than just the focus on his republicanism, he thought that it was more important. And actually, I think one of the criticisms I would have of Bruce is that I think he underestimated how much of an impact, say, the anti-nuclear legislation had worldwide, particularly because it got us out of the ANZUS alliance, which essentially was a very, which was a statement of New Zealand sovereignty in itself, essentially, so we weren't just going and following um, UK and, and um, the US in terms of foreign policy. I was just going to add, and so on, in terms of the social liberals and so on too, that in the makeup of the Labour Party and so on at the time, just adding to what um, Joe actually said, that you had a lot of people and so on who were very concerned about things like the Springbok tour, very concerned about the war in Vietnam, but also when it came down to economics, they were completely ignorant of right. economics. And so the Labour Party had these groups of people that when the economic doctrines were actually discussed in GST and so on in the mid-1980s, they just didn't know what to say. They just assumed that what the government was doing was correct. And so Bruce became increasingly frustrated with that sort of level of, of economic sort of ignorant. Um, ignorant. Joe, your um, contribution there, um, uh, you mentioned in passing around um, one of Jason's criticisms of the Labour Party and workers sort of being sucked into it, particularly those who would like it to be better. I think he described it as like a, a two-state reformism where first you'd have to reform the Labour Party into a reformist party just yeah. so you had a reformist Labour Party. Mm. Um, could you break that down a little bit just because um, I think it's an interesting point but you sort of glossed over it just like what, what do you mean by that those two stages? I guess, sure. um, I guess you know, this was interesting because first stage, stage that Jesson was writing that in 1983. So this was before Rogernomics. So even he saw that there was um, right-wing forces that were happening with the Labour Party at the time. Um, um, for example, you know, there were some, some debates over economic policy that were happening and essentially that Labour went to the 1984 election pretty much without an economic policy. That's sort of, so it was in a vacuum to some extent. Um, so I guess in terms of you know, um, wanting Labour to be a um, reforming a reformist party, that, um, that problem became even more difficult after Logonomics. Because not only were you trying to, say, reform a what you might call a conservative social democratic party into a le more left-wing party, you're actually taking a far-right libertarian economics and trying to drag it back to even where it was. So people were even just trying to say, look, can we even just have Kurt back, please? And that was regarded as radical. <laughs> so, yeah, does that answer where you go? Yeah. yeah. Um, so questions to both of you, very simple. Where do we go from here? <laughs> simple question. You go. <laughs> no, I, I think that, for me, Bruce Jessen was really important in terms of my own political development. Um, in terms of, he was one of the first people that really got me into thinking about economic concerns. Um, so that was, um, and also, um, also in terms of really influenced my union work as well. So one of the things I, I worked for 11 years as a researcher for First Union, 
And one of the things I was doing there was putting together company profiles. So what I was doing is, you know, why is this left winger going through all the business pages? But essentially what I was doing is looking for the contradictions. So um, is to look for what the capitalist press say about themselves and compare it to something they said over here and sort of say, this doesn't make sense. And because you're using your own sources against them, that's quite a powerful tactic, I think, for the left to use. And that was a basis for what I used for my, a lot of my union work. And pretty much when I started doing that stuff, I was pulling out my copy of Only Purposes Mad and sort of saying, right, I want to do this. So that, you know, that, I guess, rather than what can be done, I just thought, well, I just put, put it in terms of my own terms of what I did, at least. Well, I'm fairly cynical and jaded, I know, but um, basically, yes, Bruce had a very definite influence and so on me, particularly on the terms of the book. So in terms of where we should go from now, well, I think that probably having groups like this is probably very useful to actually keep away alive some sort of alternative idea and suggestion and so on like that, and keep on forcing those sort of programs, something opposite and so on, for the new right out there into the wider society. I think that I'd like to say that the unions should be there too, but unfortunately, I'm, I'm pretty cynical about you know some of the unions, and I'm pretty cynical about uh, CTU and so on to some degree too, because of the fact that as much as, and I'm a unionist, as you know, I work for a trade union, but the unions are mostly, of course, concerned with actual practical results and practical economies so we deal with things as they are. And I think that, you know, essentially to have something that goes out there and says, hey, there's something different, you need an entirely new organisation. But you also need, I think, a genuine debate. The new right won because, and this is taking what you've said before, because of the fact that essentially there's a feeling that the old top-down system in New Zealand, emphasised by Maldoon, essentially didn't work. And they built on that, even though it was a lie. But they used it and so on. And there was all well, the favourite for the new right in the 1980s was Tina. There is no alternative. And Margaret Thatcher said the same thing and so on too. Of course, there were alternatives. There always were alternatives. But they were never actually given the chance to be debated or indeed you know, put out there. And the role, I think, of us is to go out there and put these alternatives to people and to say to them, yes, there are these alternatives. And it's hard. As someone who's been doing this now for over 40 years, it's effing hard to actually do that. So, um, like, his idea of nationalism as a strategy seems to be, like, a problem seems to be the relationship between Māori and farmers. So one of the things the 84 government did with the Treaty of Waitangi um, and then the national government in the 90s did with the Treaty of Settlements was uh, to, you know, sort of like, you know, it was a new relationship of the state with Māori that was possible partly because farmers were less important and finance capital was more important. Um, how did Jason relate to like that conflict in the countryside between farmers and Maori, um, and what like were your experiences with Manamotahake and the alliance, and you know what do you think he, what do you think his take would be on where we're at now? Yeah, I, I, I don't think he actually particularly talked about that specific issue in terms of Maori and their relationship with farmers and things like that. I mean, perhaps um, someone like Bill Such would be closer because he actually suggested, look, you know, we need to move the New Zealand economy away from farming, okay? And I think that um, that was, and I remember now, that was one of the criticisms that Bruce made of Muldoon, 
was it wasn't necessarily the problem wasn't that he what did he intervene in the economy the problem was that he intervened in the wrong way so he intervened towards farming so rather than trying to do something new with the New Zealand economy he was trying to trying to prop up the things that had gone before yeah um, so just to, in terms of merit because you mentioned it uh, <laughs> yeah, um, it's, um, that, uh, that Bruce had a, um, a lot of respect and empathy with Maori, but one thing he, I think he shared with them was the strong sense of history. You know, that sort of Hegelian sense of history really struck to the Maori worldview too. Um, and actually, in what the book by, oh, anyway, the, the Peter Lee piece that I pointed up before in the, in the Grey Jessen book has actually got a very interesting piece where he looks at um, sort of Hegel's. Um, descriptions of history and relate that to the Maori context of history. So that's worth reading if you're interested in that area. Um, so the other thing that he liked about, he appreciated about Maori is he saw them as the first Republicans in New Zealand because they fought the wars against the British. So, um, but I thought what was interesting about Jason, and this is what influenced my views a lot on these issues, is that um, it's a, almost quite critical of um, how the liberal left handle um, Maori issues. So it's more terms in terms of a um, Jason would describe it with more. They take more of a religious aspect to it rather than a political aspect. Um, so and the idea, you know, I think that this has really struck with me. This idea that um, there's a there's a tradition of humanitarian concern. that has accompanied the history of colonial and racial oppression in New Zealand, and essentially this tradition is religious. Although it requires political involvement, the motivation for this tradition is not political but moral and is never coped adequately with political reality. So its concerns are a sin and atonement and its function has been of the guilty conscience of Pākehā society. So what, he, what Jason is doing here is he's criticising um, Pākehā attitudes to um, the, the maori Pākehā relations and I think that's really interesting um, because certainly I, I remember when the, the Three Waters debate came up this was the quote I went back to. Because you're not actually explaining what you're trying to do. Um, so, that, um, so that was the only... I'll, I'll let you go. Oh no, sorry, the other thing I was meant to mention is in terms of uh, what Q was mentioning in terms of Bruce's concern about financialisation is that he wrote a book called the, uh, the Fletcher Challenge in 1980 which was like a study of the company. And what he was doing was tracking um, the development of Fletcher Challenge from a company that made things, so I built the state houses in the 30s, to turning into a finance company. So, and I think the danger that what he's talking in terms of financialisation, and Pollyanna talks about this too, is that other you know, the political problems get turned into financial problems. And I think that sometimes we can see some of those dangers happening again. For example, you could say something like the emissions trading scheme is uh, an attempt to turn a climate problem or a, a chemical problem in the atmosphere into a financial problem. And does that mean it's actually going to address the problem at hand? Um, and secondly, that was actually one of my criticisms I had that have kept in the back of my mind, really, with Three Waters too, is that people don't... I, I can understand why um, they needed so much capital, because there's so much underinvestment. That's absolutely true. But what did they do? They did, the people who designed that policy were PricewaterhouseCoopers. So in terms of financialisation, I would have a concern with Three Waters that, just an inkling in the back of my mind, if you start defining something as a financial problem, the ultimate logic does it actually undermine the public service intent that should be behind it. Um, I found it interesting you said uh, doing that work with First Union around 
uh, company's financial positions. Yeah. I'm a delegate there and it's very funny for my company to say, hey guys, we're doing financially amazing this year, but unfortunately we're not doing very well financially this year. Um, so you can't have any pay increases. Yeah. Um, but my question was really, um, where to start? If you wanted to read Bruce, yeah. um, what book would you pick up first? Okay, um, it depends how much time you've got. Where's the great one? <laughs> <laughs> Alright, okay. I mean, this was the um, only per purposes mad is a good book because it was the last thing he wrote. So it's almost like a summary of his thought. But if, one thing that I found, I really enjoyed reading this book on the bus because there's a whole lot of really short pieces. So it means that you can take something in, it's on a slightly different topic, you can think about it. Um, so apart from the two, the, um, the introduction by Andrew Sharp and the bit of Andrew um, by Peter Lee at the end, they're the heavier bits, but the short articles from Metro and the one that I, I mentioned up there on the Labour Party is in this book. So that, that's where I'd start there. Just in terms of what you said about first, um, I mean, I, got, I became a researcher at first in, 2000, in 2006. And I found that um, there was the, 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 the left wasn't very good at recording itself. So it didn't actually know sometimes what it was about. So um, if you had a struggle, no one actually went and recorded it so people could learn from it. It sort of it ended up staying in people's heads. And I think that can be a danger. So in, in some ways, what I found myself as a researcher at first doing is actually, record, first of all, recording those things and recording some of the industrial history that happened at these companies so people knew about it. So it was so like correct. So one of the key things I did, and I'm happy to show, do a talk on this. We'll show people these because I think it's a useful thing for delicate education and things. I'm happy to contribute with that if I can. But as to doing these company profiles, partly influenced by Bruce in terms of the the um, the structure of the company, finding out where the power is, finding out um, what are the what are the leverage points, what are the, what are the contradictions that we can pull out in public and sort of say, you're not what you say you are. Yeah. Thank you for listening. And if you want to find out more, you can find us on Facebook as the Canterbury Socialist Society or visit our website at www.canterburysocialistsociety.org.nz. Thank you, and until next time, take care.